we turn again this evening to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and we are in the first chapter and in verses 3 to 10 the great apostle Paul is looking back at how the gospel came first of all to the Thessalonians and their response to it and he's full of thanksgiving we give thanks to God always verse 2 for you all and last time we looked at the way the gospel came to Thessalonica one of the first places uh, that a church was founded and the gospel came in word the gospel can be defined the gospel contains truths it's got to be in word but it didn't just come in word it also came in the power of the holy spirit and you need both word and spirits now this evening we're going to look at the next thing that paul gives thanks for not only did the gospel come to the thessalonians but they responded to it. There's a chain here. The gospel came to them. They responded to it. And then the gospel went out from them. Isn't that lovely? So let's just read some verses. Maybe uh, verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God... For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became, this is how they responded, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice how Paul started that paragraph? With a very controversial doctrine, election. Knowing, beloved, your election of God. But he's not interested in uh, having uh, an argument about election or a philosophical discussion about it. Uh, he is a pastor speaking. Uh, beloved, brethren, brothers, how do you know that you're one of God's chosen people? That's what he's interested in. How can we know that we are true Christians? Well, here's the test, Paul says. How do you respond to the word of God? Isn't that interesting? What Paul is looking at is the family likeness. He's talking about God the Father. God and Father. You can tell, can't you, uh, when there's a newborn baby, uh, you can tell that that baby belongs to its parents. You look for the likeness. And what Paul is talking about uh, in the rest of this chapter, really, is the family likeness. We can tell whether we have been born again of the spirits because it will produce certain traits in us and the one we're looking at this evening is how we respond to the word again as a preacher i find that it's interesting it's not 
one-way preaching. So Paul does say that the gospel was preached in word and also with an anointing of the spirits that was upon Paul. But it's not just one way. The gospel was also received by the congregation. We often forget that, don't we? It's a two-way process, preaching. That's why we shouldn't just ask God to bless the preacher or pray that God will anoint the preacher, but he must anoint the hearers as well. I know we're sometimes accused of being a one-man ministry in a church like ours. But what we're really thinking about tonight is everybody involved. Think for it about it for a moment. If we all respond to the word and put into practice the word and live according to the word, aren't we more involved than in any other way? So how did these people respond to the gospel? How are we to respond to the gospel? Well, the two things that Paul says about their response might surprise us. What's the first thing? They received the word How did they receive it? Here's the gospel coming in revival power. Wouldn't you like that? Haven't many of you been praying for an outpouring of the spirits for years? If that was to happen, what would the response be? In much affliction. You became followers of us, verse 6, and of the Lord, having received the word In much affliction. Listen, my friends, when God blesses his word, it goes hand in hand with opposition to the word. It makes sense, doesn't it? The devil does not want the gospel to have free course. The devil will do his utmost to cause opposition. And that's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. So let's just go through some of the details. You've got it in Acts 17. Paul and his companions came to Thessalonica, as was his wont. He went first to the synagogue, and he preached there for three consecutive Sabbaths. God blessed the word there, and people were converted. And that stirred up the hatred of some of the religious leaders And eventually, it came to a head. They surrounded the house of one of the new converts, Jason. Probably by that stage, the church wasn't meeting in the synagogue, but meeting in the home of Jason. And they dragged Jason out. The mob was baying for blood. And they dragged Jason out. And they put him before the authorities. And they falsely accuse him of rebelling against Caesar. Acts 17, verse 7. Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they have to escape from Thessalonica by night, and they have to leave this infant church to itself. And what happened? Once the missionaries were away, did the persecution stop? Not at all. It carried on. And that's how they received the word. In much affliction. That's why Paul was worried about them. And that's why he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how they were faring. And when Timothy gave a good report, Paul wrote this letter, so grateful to God, so grateful that they were keeping going. 
what about us? Do you, do you know what the word for affliction means here in the Greek? Um, it's a good word. It means severe pressure being put on you. Severe pressure. I, I think these people, they understood uh, stress better than, 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 than we do. When there is pressure on us, it, it causes all sorts of pains, doesn't it? And here were people, they were being pressurised by opposition on several fronts. Now these people had the pressure of losing their family if they became Christians. I don't know if anybody here has had that kind of opposition. I remember meeting a Christian when I was in university, a well-speaking Christian in the church. Uh, she had uh, been uh, thrown out of her family for professing faith. I know some of our Iranian brethren, they're disowned by their families. How pressurised that must be. Uh, others uh, weren't given jobs. They were sacked from their workplaces. This was happening in the workplace guilds in the Roman world. Imagine the pressure of that, of knowing that you would lose your job if you were to profess yourself to be a follower of the Christ. And others, of course, were even put to death. So this was the kind of stresses that were upon these people, and yet they still received the word. Uh, this is how John Stotts put it. I can recommend John Stotts' Bible Speaks Today volume on 1 Thessalonians. The authentic gospel always arouses hostility because it challenges human pride and self-sufficiency or self-indulgence, as Stott calls it. Although the opposition it provokes takes different forms, most of us will probably never have experienced physical opposition. Not yet, anyway, not yet. Uh, the closest I've come to it is preaching in the villages in India and Basker warning us about Hindu militants, uh, the threat of them attacking us, setting fire to our vehicle or something. But we know opposition, don't we? You know opposition. You know what it's like because you have the light of Christ in you and the world is darkness. They don't mix. They don't mix. And so you know that you don't belong. And you may be cold-shouldered in the workplace. Isn't that a horrible thing, to be cold-shouldered? You may be isolated at school or in university. Isn't, isn't that horrible? If you ask a Galina about growing up in Moldova... Uh, the Christians there would have lower grades in school just because they were believers. That's a form of opposition, isn't it? Or maybe not to have a preference in the workplace because you won't compromise on your standards because you're a believer. And we don't know what may happen in the future with the changes in our laws, whether we will be fined or even arrested 
for sticking to the truths of Scripture. So even if we haven't endured physical opposition as yet, it may be coming. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. But I would still hold, according to the words of Paul to Timothy, anyone who lives godly will suffer persecution in one form or another because we're followers of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus Christ put it? If anyone will come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. But do you notice how they endured? Let's read again. Verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And they received the word, knowing full well what would happen to them, that they were taking up their crosses. What enabled them or inspired them to do that? Well, here's the answer. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. What is Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying, you received the word in much affliction because you saw in me, you saw in Silas, you saw in Timothy, a living example of those who were already suffering for the word. Uh, the word for imitators is the word for mold, the word for mold. Have you um, done some cooking over Christmas? I'm considering starting cooking things um, Christmas time. Um, making uh, star-shaped biscuits. So if you were to make star-shaped cookies, you have, don't you, um, a mold you have a tray that has a star shape uh, in it. And so each cookie has that mold, that shape, that pattern. So even though each cookie, each biscuit is its own individual biscuit, it still has that mold. And as believers, we have a mold. It's not a star shaped mold, it's a cross shaped mold. And just as the Apostle Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, he also embodied the gospel. He was an example of the gospel. And as one commentator put it, people learn from models caught, from molds caught, as well as ideas taught. Isn't that true? When you see somebody suffering, doesn't it inspire you to follow their example? How did Paul come to Thessalonica? He came to Thessalonica with a sore back, didn't he? What had happened to Paul? I'm sure the people in Thessalonica had heard of what happened in Philippi, where Paul was before. Paul and Silas were arrested there, and they were put in prison there, and they were whipped there, and they were put in chains there. They'd suffered already for the sake of the gospel. Now, what would you and I have done? We would probably have given up, wouldn't we, after being released from prison in Philippi. But that wasn't the Apostle Paul. His heart was full of his Savior. And what did he do? He went to the next place. And he did exactly the same thing. He preached the same gospel. And it got him into the same trouble. And he didn't mind. And do you know what happened the rest of Paul's life? Think of it, my friends. Here was the man that God had called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. 
You can't get a better job description than that. A higher position in the church. The apostle to the Gentiles. Now, you would have thought that God would have treated this man differently. Uh, maybe he would have given uh, luxury treatments to such. But when Paul is looking back at his life, uh, let me just read one of his personal letters, 2 Corinthians 11. This is the kind of life that he lived. There's a pattern here, and it's repeated again and again, not just in Philippi and in Thessalonica. This is how he says, verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Okay, Paul, you're a minister of Christ. You're an apostle of Christ. You're the apostle to the Gentiles. What's it like, Paul? <laughs> Let me tell you what it's like. In labours more abundance, in stripes, in whippings, Above measure, in prisons more frequently, it wasn't just a dungeon in Philippi. In deaths often, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day. I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the countryside, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and Soil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Do you want to follow him? I don't know how you would have done a risk assessment to go on a mission trip with the Apostle Paul you would have run out of paper. What an inspiring role model Paul would have been to these believers beginning to taste the bitter cup of persecution. And they see in Paul a living embodiment of the message. Do you know what Paul says? I die daily. I die daily. He didn't mean physically die, but he meant I die to the world and its expectations. I die to the flatteries and the praises of men. I die to the criticisms of men. I consider all of that nothing because daily I rise from the ashes like a phoenix and carry on following my Lord and Saviour. Look at how he puts it. In case we begin to hero worship the man, you became followers of us and, and of the Lord. That's it, Paul. <laughs> These Thessalonians are following you, Paul, because you are following the Lord. Uh, he wrote to the Corinthians, didn't he? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All Paul is doing is walking the path of the Savior. And all the Thessalonians are doing is following Paul, following the Savior. And as will come in the next few weeks, all the people that are affected by the Thessalonians are doing are following the Thessalonians who are following the Apostle Paul, who is following the Savior. So everybody is marching in the same direction. Are we? Are we 
marching to the drumbeats of Jesus Christ. Are we soldiers, soldiers of the cross? Are we ready to suffer for Jesus Christ? Luther said, if Christ wore a crown of thorns, why should his followers expect only a crown of roses? There's only one road, only one road, and it leads to Calvary. It gets discouraging at times, but I know I'll make it because the saving grace of Christ is over me. And when we come to Calvary, there is still only one road, and it's the road that has the shadow of the cross upon it. Are we on it? There are no shortcuts. Think of Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. A Christian comes to the hill difficulty. I've often stood at the foot of difficult hills in my time. And the first thing you do is try to find a shortcut. You try to find a shortcut. And there are some difficult um, pinnacles on many mountains, right? Pinnacles are rocky towers that you have to climb over. And it's very tempting to try and look for a way around them. But usually the paths around them are more dangerous. Just like with Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, it's better to go over the hill difficulty. That's the way. That's the way. Uh, Let me read the words of the Saviour. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Uh, Where else? Peter, Peter, the reading, for this is what you've been called to. Christ also suffered for us. We've signed up for it, my friends. We've signed up. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that you should follow his steps. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What did we sing? What did we sing? Why should I complain? I complain. You complain, don't you? We're all complainers today. We can't help it. We're living in the West. It's the malaise of the West to complain. But why should I complain of want or distress, temptation, or pain. He told me, we've been warned, he told me, no less, the heirs of salvation, I know from his word, through much tribulation, must follow their Lord. I don't know what your cross is. I don't know what your cross is. But I know that there is one who will enable you. Very well, in much affliction, in much affliction. That's the first way they received the word. And then there is something else, and this is completely the opposite. Do you know what it is? Verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy. Well, well, you say, how can a person receive the word in pain, in pressures, And enjoy. They don't go together, do they? Pain? Joy? This is not normal joy. (laughs) It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
I've got here one of Lloyd-Jones's volumes on Romans. Have you read them all? I haven't. I've only read a few. Lloyd-Jones didn't make it to the end of Romans. He was taken ill and he retired. And the verse he got to right at the end was Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness. He got to that. And peace, he got to that. But he didn't get to this phrase, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Lloyd-Jones said, it was God's providence that stopped him from getting to joy in the Holy Spirit. Because he said he didn't know enough of it. And I think that one trait of our Christianity that we're often wanting in this joy of the Holy Spirit. And putting joy and affliction together, could it be, could it be, because we're too comfortable, we're too much at ease in Zion. So I quoted in my prayer the pattern of Christ. What is the pattern of Christ? It is the communion of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. We want the power, don't we? But we don't want the cross. But if we want the power, it's through the cross. There's no other way. There's no other way. As Willie Still called his autobiography, do you want to live? Do you want to live? Do you, do you want to live on a higher plane? I'm sure we all do. Willie Still said, dying to live. Dying to live. Why did Paul live as he did? He lived as he did because he died so often. He died so often. So, my friends, <laughs> there's a joy to be had. There's a joy to be had. Not just after suffering. There is a joy after suffering. Let me quote Jesus Christ. Verily, verily, I say unto you, in the same sermon as I've just quoted from, that you shall weep and lament and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Why? Because I will see you again. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to leave you, but I will come back to you and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man will take away from you. So that's one joy that the disciples were going to experience, seeing again the risen Savior. And that was an amazing experience, wasn't it? But can I say, in all humility, that this joy in the Holy Spirit is even greater than that? Because this isn't joy after sorrow. This is joy in the midst of sorrow. And this isn't the joy of seeing the physical risen saviour again. But it's the joy of Jesus Christ visiting us by his spirits. Let me read Peter, not chapter 2, but chapter 1. This is the joy I'm talking about. Peter described as the Thessalonians, the Christians he was writing to. You greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are being pressurised, you are in heaviness, through manifold pressures, trials, Yet, believing, you rejoice, and here's the joy of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of the trials, you rejoice with a joy that's so profound that it's unspeakable, it's inexpressible, it can't be put into words, and full of glory. The joy of the Holy Spirit. My friends, it's not natural. Have you read Charles Dickens, Martin Chuzzlewit? There's a character there called Mark Tapley, Mark Tapley, 
And Mark Tapley had that temperament where he wanted to be jolly. So he would go off on a challenge. He went off to America uh, and faced all sorts of trials there in order to see if he could still be jolly. Now, being jolly, like Tapley, isn't the same as the joy in the Holy Spirit. This is something of God that comes to us when we least expect to rejoice. Do, do we know something of it? Do we? Can I go back to Philippi, to that prison cell? Not just a prison cell, but the dungeon. The lowest, dankiest, darkest part of the prison. And those two men, they were in chains. They'd been whipped. They were bleeding. They were in great pain. They didn't have paracetamol. And what were they doing in the middle of the night? They were singing God's praises. Do you know why? Because I think they knew this joy. Oh, joy that seekest me through pain. My friends, this gospel enables you to sing in prison. This joy makes a man or a woman or a child sing songs, not just in the daytime, in the sunshine, but in the midnight hour when it's darkest. Do you know what it is to sing at midnight? When everything else has given way, to still be rejoicing. Uh, this is how uh, a man puts it. This joy springs only from his presence and operation in the soul, and which is never in this world so pure and deep and full as when a man is enabled to suffer faithfully for Christ's sake and the gospel. Now, there's a joy of salvation, isn't there? There's a joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven. There is a joy there, and that is profound. I'll never forget that joy that I first experienced when I realized that Christ had died for me, for my sins. But can I say this is a higher joy? Because that first joy, the joy of salvation, is a joy that comes to us because we realize that something has been given to us. But this joy is when everything has been taken from us. And what we're doing is knowing the presence of our dear Savior. Oh, my friends, this is best felt than telt. And maybe some of you have experienced it more than I have. I've got, I've got a scar on my thumb there. That was when I tried as a boy to use a penknife to uh, carve toy soldiers. There are deeper scars in the soul, aren't there? Amy Carmichael said, he who has no scars has not travelled far. But you know, when there's a scar, there's also a joy, a joy. And I've spoken to believers who've been through trials that I cannot even imagine. And they've said to me afterwards, we would have it no other way. Not that we've prayed for that, but we would have it no other way. Because in the midst of it, he drew near. He drew near. My friends, it is possible for a prison cell to be turned into a palace. 
read about the persecution under the communists in Romania, in the Soviet Union, uh, read about uh, men uh, who, who suffered in those places, and they will say that he came, he visited them. They were in a large place, even though they were confined, because they were full of the joy of the Holy Spirit. My time is coming to an end. Weeping may endure for a night, and joy cometh in the morning. Praise God. If you're in the night at this moment, it's not always going to be dark. There's going to be a morning, and there's going to be a dawn, and there's going to be rejoicing. But my friend, what I'm talking about here, what Paul is referring to here, is there is also a joy in the night. There is a joy in the dark. Can I just, as I come to a conclusion, read one example? I've got Lloyd-Jones on Romans here, and he gives many examples. Uh, and the one I've got here is Henry Venn. Have you heard of Henry Venn? He was an 18th century clergyman, and he lost his wife, right? He had a terrible, terrible affliction of losing his wife. And he writes to the Countess of Huntingdon, a wealthy patron, of the evangelicals. It's a lengthy quote, but it just gets uh, to the heart of what Paul is talking about here. Not just receiving the word in affliction, but in that affliction, knowing a joy, a joy. And I'm sure many of you here have known just a touch of this, uh, and we can uh, praise God, and uh, we can hope in God uh, for whatever may happen to us. Uh, Venn says, I am now a living witness of the truth, the truth we've been looking at tonight. I have lost all that I could wish myself to have been in the partner of my cares and joys, his wife. I have lost her when her soul was as a watered garden. I think that, that's a, a commendation. <laughs> Nevertheless, I can say all is well. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth at all times and in everything pertaining to me, let him do what seemeth him good. Then, and yet more important, were there no Holy Spirit now to strengthen me mightily? Were there nothing more than a dependence on the word of promise without an almighty power and agent to explain, impress, and apply it how would my hands hang down and my knees be so feeble that I should faint and fall under the pressures of my cross? What he's saying is, I can't just rely on the word alone. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then he ends by putting it like this. I abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost given unto me. I rejoice in, not just after, but in tribulation from the experience I now have, more than I possibly could in a less severe trial, that the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, is as rivers of waters in a dry place and giveth songs in the night. My friend, the man of sorrows can become so real to you and me in the furnace of affliction that we can sing songs in the middle of the night. And people, not in prison, I know, but in Cardiff, will say, well, well, what has so-and-so got 
that enables him or her to react like that. So the word is not just coming to us. We receive it. And we receive it in affliction. If God is to bless us more, it won't get easier. It'll get much more difficult because there will be more opposition. But in the midst of that, there is a joy to be had. A joy of the Holy Spirit. May we pray for this. And may we expect it. And may God hear us as we continue to call upon him for his namesake.